It's that time again. You go beyond the jive. Join our hosts, John Swan and Natalie B. Brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. All you hive jive junkies out there, this is the hive jive. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Hive Jive Junkie exclusive feed of the Beekeeper Chats here with Natalie and myself. And today we are coming to you audio only. So I do apologize in advance. There is no video component to this episode or next week's episode. For those of you who are at the Bee Academy level, that $10 tier, um, you will not be able to actually see us this week or next week. But as a consolation prize, and this is probably even more important than uh, just being able to see the two of us goof around and interact, there are actually going to be some new training and education videos and tutorials that will be coming out to help supplement that. And those are way overdue and needed anyway. So the first one of those will be coming out actually this week. It may or may not already be out there before you hear this episode, but it is going to be queen spotting and how to find your queen. And Natalie and I will talk a little bit more about uh, some other aspects of that here later, maybe in uh, next week's episode. But that will be out there for you to go out and check out. And then also the another one that is coming down the pipe here pretty quickly is the anatomy of a bee. And this is all basically stemming from the fact that as you heard in last week's episode, I have recently had to go out and teach a beginner beekeeping class for the first time in forever. And so it's kind of brought a lot of this back to the forefront. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually going through and dissecting down that massive three to four hours worth of information into little 10 and 20 minute training and education type videos and segments so that we can put that out there for all of you in case you might need that information or be interested in checking it out. So that'll be out there for anybody at the B Academy level. So look forward to that. There will be one of them this week, at least if not two, and there'll be another one coming out next week, hopefully. And so that will be in there. And then of course, you've got the audio version for everybody here, everybody at the Hive Jive Junkie level or the B Academy level. You've got your beekeeper chats with Natalie and I this week and next week in the audio version. So there's all that to get all that out of the way. We'll get all the business out of the way this week, just up front. And uh, yeah, so hi, Natalie, how are you? I'm fine. It's good to be back. Thank you for having me again. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for for joining and uh, allowing us to continue this conversation. I kind of like this because of the fact that it is like we're both equals. We're on par. We have a lot of the same background, a lot of the same education, but we have our own viewpoints and our own perspectives. So it makes it kind of interesting. We can have a dynamic conversation about a topic where we're both knowledgeable But Mm -hmm. I think it actually provides a lot of insight into the different ways things can be done and different topics out there that, you know, we we didn't necessarily touch on when we were doing beginner beekeeping and uh, the whole first two seasons of the Hive Jive podcast itself. So I kind of think this is a a fun little flip flop of that dynamic. Yeah, we can go deeper and we can also um, basically... um, in effect, explain how there's different ways to address any kind of issues or concept when it comes to beekeeping. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So today we have a very odd topic 
And this came from social media. This Mm -hmm. is a post and I'm going to leave all names out of it so that we're not calling anybody out in any way whatsoever. Uh, But this came from a post that a listener saw and found it interesting. And I'm just going to use the word interesting and state that it does not denote good or bad. Right. And send it over to us here at the Hive Jive to go through and get our take on how we felt about it. And when I read it, I, I also would say interesting. I was a little bit conflicted and I definitely had an opinion and I sent it over to you, Natalie. And yes. uh, you also and my mind exploded. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, you also had an opinion. So we're going to go through and we're going to talk about that today. And it is, uh, how did you state it? It's a, like a theology type discussion. Absolutely. Sort of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be talking about some theological aspects of of this little post. And I'm going to read the post to everybody so that you all will be on the same page with us. And then uh, we'll we'll kind of go through and break it down and talk about it. And that will be our beekeeper chat episode for this week. So here we go. Are you ready? Well, actually, I wanted to make a little disclaimer before we get started on the discussions where neither you or I are theologists. So this will be our just kind of a personal take on this stuff, right? This is true. I am not a certified anything outside of Master Beekeeper. (laughs) (laughs) So this is, yeah, this is a, this is an open discussion, just our own opinions, how we feel about it. And from our perspective on how we view bees and beekeeping. And you'll, you'll understand, I think this will all come home very quickly as I go through and read this posting. And it probably in one way or another, it will probably invoke polarizing opinions or thoughts in all of and you. And strong emotions <laughs> and strong emotions. Yes, just like it did in us. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, so here is the actual post that was sent to us. And I'm going to read through this and then uh, we'll have this theological discussion here. So, quote unquote, apparently a part of the reason why farmed bees stay in the beehives that humans build for them is because the farmed hives are safer and sturdier. I don't know how a Discord server's worth of bugs that only have a single brain cell each would logically conclude that the humans protect them from outside threats such as illnesses and parasites, but if I understood it correctly, the bees would be free to move away and build a new nest somewhere else any time that they wanted, but they simply choose not to do so. You know how in almost every culture, people have some concept of, quote, If I sacrifice something that I made, such as made, grew, or produced, to the gods, they will then ward me and my harvest from evil. So in a way, don't the bees willingly sacrifice a part of their own harvest to an entity not only far greater than them, but nearly beyond their comprehension in exchange for protection against natural forces wildly outside of their own control? So tell me, beekeepers, what are you to your bees if not a mildly eldritch god now first and foremost and this was something that we we literally just discussed right before we started this so that everybody's on the same page the definition of eldritch is quote unquote weird and sinister or ghostly so that is something dark and mysterious that is beyond your comprehension or control and seems to have a greater power even to a mystical or magical extent over you. And that is sometimes 
a comprehension thing, not necessarily a reality. Sometimes maybe that power is given because of the lack of comprehension versus a true power that that thing wields over you. So there you go. So there's the post. Now, (laughs) now the fun begins. When I go through and I read this initially, it does to some degree sound like it was written from a non-beekeeper's perspective, somebody who does not keep bees. So let's put that out there first. They are theorizing and drawing analogies and conclusions from something that they don't even have a full concept of, but they're trying to make that parallel to some of these other aspects. So that's where I believe the article came from in an origination standpoint. Now, the individual that sent it over to us here at the show did not agree with (laughs) the context of this article. I'm chuckling. Uh, You know why? (laughs) Yes, yes. I also do not agree with the context of the article, nor do I believe you agree. (laughs) (laughs) I made it pretty clear, actually, when we first talked about this. Yes. Yes, you did. And and unfortunately, they cannot see those text messages or the emojis that went along with them. But so the, the concept of this, the I think the first aspect, if we started at the top and we kind of went down through this, number one, man-made beehives are not better than the natural hives that a bee would find in nature. Yes. That's a big so, assumption they're making. Yeah, that is, that is a huge assumption. Now, Is it providing a cavity for them to protect them from the elements? Yes. If the bees stay inside that cavity, it is of their own choosing. But Mm -hmm. that cavity is not necessarily the best thing out there for them. They would probably be far better in a tree where Mm -hmm. they have, you know, a minimum of three inches of insulation all the way around them than they are in our tiny little Langstroth boxes that only have three quarters of an inch of barrier between them and the outside world. So that's number one. Number two, if our man-made boxes were truly so spectacular, then in theory, and I love this because we get this all the time, in theory, the old adage that non-beekeepers think, if I buy a beehive and set it out in front of a colony that's Mm -hmm. in the place that I don't want them to be, they will then leave that place and move into the beehive mm-hmm. because it's a beehive, right? No. <laughs> no, no, no. Laughing is fine. But the answer to that is no. And, and I get that a lot when I do different speaking engagements and trainings and things like that. In fact, that beekeeper class that I taught, there were a couple in the class that were there specifically because they have bees in a water meter on their property. And I said this without taking a poll and having any idea And I said, just so you know, a beehive is not the same thing as a birdhouse. If you build it, they're not necessarily going to come. And if they've already moved into a structure that they chose on their own and you put a beehive out there, they're not just going to leave that structure and abandon it because there's a beehive present. That's a man-made structure, not Mm -hmm. necessarily. It is designed more for man and man's convenience than it is for the bees and the bees' convenience. Really, the only consideration for the bees inside a Langstroth box is bee space. That's it. That's the only consideration for the bees. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and my, my whole thing was that this, this statement struck me as being a good representation of 
and, and I'm going to be blunt, the ar- arrogance that some beekeepers have or some people have of their power over the animal and the superorganism in this case, uh, not really understanding really how it works and why it does uh, what it does. So, you know, what's important to remember is that um, a colony of honeybees, especially when they're in the swarm mode, are in very precarious um, circumstances. They are in a hurry to find a cavity. um, And sometimes when they reach the, the end of their food reserves, they're going to be desperate and they'll take whatever um, presents itself, including, you know, flower pots or things that are wholly inappropriate and that actually can potentially spell their doom. Um, so the, the, the concept of uh, them being grateful to beekeepers for providing them a cavity somewhat has a, a little bit of a... Um, uh, truth in that the bees are grateful for the cavity. However, the fact that it's a cavity managed by beekeepers is completely uh, not something they're looking for. And it's actually probably something that if um, they did have some kind of understanding of what's happening, they would run away from as fast as fast as possible uh, because it, it introduces a whole lot of stress and a whole lot of changes in the way they do things. It's really... Um, Uh, disrupting their natural processes and presenting a danger in itself. So to that note and to counter that note, Mm -hmm. or really not to counter it, to really kind of go along with it, I guess I should say, because I'm in agreement with the aspect in most of the regards of it. When the swarm first leaves and they do have plenty of food stores, Experiments from Tom Seeley and others have... I was going to mention that, yeah. Yeah, they have documented time and time again that if you provide them different options and different opportunities. They're going to always pick the best scenario for them, but it is based on internal volume and height and the size of the opening. Those are the primary aspects. They also then go in and they look at airflow. They look at humidity, temperature control, things like that. Is it damp and icky in there or is it dry Um, you know, is it high enough that we're going to be protected? So they take all of these things into consideration and when done in an experimental fashion, they always choose the best option out of all available options to them. Now, in Uh some circumstances, that best option may have been a flower pot in somebody's backyard that was flipped upside Uh down. Is it ideal? No, but it was the best that they could find based on the available options. Now, on the other side of that, For those of you who have ever gone out and caught a swarm or done a removal and put them into a Langstroth box, in my findings from when I did that a lot, I had almost an 80% failure rate Mm -hmm. of them staying in that box, meaning I did put them in there and they did have a choice and their choice and decision was, this is not what we want and they would leave. And the only times they stayed was when I forced them to do so because I would use a queen excluder to keep them in said box. Yes. Mm -hmm. The queen couldn't leave. So therefore the foragers, when they would try to leave and try, they did, they would leave and they would ball up and they would form the bivouac and then they would go through and take roll call, realize that the queen wasn't there. And then they'd be like, ah, crap. And they would go back to the hive and ball up on the front of it and slowly enter the, the, container again, but they may try three or four times over the course of two or three days to abscond and leave and bail and just, you know, abandon the place because they did not choose it 
and it did not fit their likings, but I forced them to be in there. So was it to their best interest? Not necessarily. It was to the beekeeper's best interest. Look, it goes back to the arrogance of people that think that they begin to understand how the superorganism works and how it chooses, really. We have some understanding through um, Dr. Seeley's research, but in the end, there's a whole lot of things we don't begin to understand. Um, the it, It's so true that, like you said, even when you're trying to force the queen to stay in, in the colony, therefore to stick around with her, it happens also that they'll try so hard to pull her through that queen excluder that they'll kill her uh, and then they'll be without a queen and leave. So there's, there's really uh, up to them and they have other um, motivations and other goals in their search for uh, a cavity that would suit their needs than what we're providing them. It's actually less than ideal, especially when it, <laughs> I'm going to get on my soapbox, but especially when it comes to a, a Langstroth box that's really not well insulated, that usually has a much larger entrance that they're typically would like to find uh, because it's it's less defensible. Um, so really there's a combination of so many factors. Volume, height, and size are important as well. Uh, size of the entrance are important. The time crunch under which they are and the amount of reserves they are is also a parameter that's going to influence their um, their their choice, but mostly that they, they vote. That's what Dr. Seeley was describing in Honeybee Democracy is when a swarm is looking for a cavity, they're going to go and measure actually walking around the inside of the box, walking around the outside of it, trying to find the internal volume, the external volume, and the basically the thickness of the walls. They're going to try to assess uh, if it's uh, got a good rain cover, if it's defensible. They're going to they're going to go back and for all the locations that have been found uh, as potential uh, candidates for the choice of their final resting place, they're uh, not final resting place, but <laughs> finest final housing place. Um, I mean, they're gonna go depending on the beekeeper in question <laughs> and their style of beekeeping, it could very well be their final resting place. <laughs> Well, and it's very often, often is actually, but uh, yeah, they'll go back and each of those bees will go and dance around in the swarm um, and just kind of communicate um, that information and try to recruit other bees to go and visit and see if they'll approve or, or go along with their choice so that they can go back in and up the ante on the vote for that specific location. But they'll compare several locations and each bees, will, each bee looking, finding a new location will, will try to recruit um, others. And the funny part, and that's what I thought was fascinating in Dr. Celia's research, is that the bees that find location will try to enlist bees to come and, and vote for it as well. But after a while, they'll lose their their drive to try to recruit bees and kind of like sit on the side and let the process kind of be uh, redone more objectively. And I think there's a... There's a um, evolutionary advantage to that uh, for them to just kind of like not keep on getting stuck on one location. They really, like you mentioned, are trying to find the best uh, location possible within those parameters that we talked about uh, and as fast as possible. 
Right. And, but they are constrained by time. They've got about a three day window from the time they leave the hive to actually have enough food reserves to survive and still be able to draw out the initial amount of comb needed to get the mm -hmm. new colonies started in the new hive. But sometimes that time frame runs out, weather doesn't yeah. cooperate or they can't find a location. And that's when you will find the majority of your open air exposed hives on a tree branch under the eave of a house because they couldn't find a place that was suitable. They ran out of time. And at that point, their option is we either use the last little bit of sugar that we have in reserve and build wax right here or we die. And sometimes they'll do that and they'll build themselves back up, especially if it's early enough in the year. And then they may abscond and leave that place for a better alternative once they've had a chance to kind of recalibrate and recoup their reserves and resources and build up their numbers a little bit, they'll, they'll abandon that place because it wasn't ideal. It was an emergency situation. So that is, that is absolutely correct. Now, the second part of this, just moving down in the, the subjects of it, basically mm -hmm. how it was displayed or written. So moving down through the, the actual posting, the next part of that is the, I don't know how a busy Discord server's worth of bees yeah. only having one brain cell each would logically conclude dot, dot, dot. So yeah. first and foremost, science has recently discovered that literal single cell organisms can make decisions. Mm -hmm. However, a single honeybee is not a single cell organism and they have more than one brain cell just for the mm -hmm. record. Yeah, That single honeybee is just as precise at navigating and memorizing and everything else as your cell phone. <laughs> so it, without all this technology and everything else, they leave their colony. They memorize the actual shape, size, color, location of the hive. Then as they move away from the hive, they memorize all the landmarks around it. And then they add in signals from electromagnetic fields and currents and airstreams and all this other stuff. And GPS. they build, yeah, they build their own B version of GPS where they can then navigate and always know how to get back to this single place. Mm -hmm. They also can do geometry better than most people's children. And, and yeah, they know math. And that we're talking about the single B knows how to do math, understands the concept of zero, understands geometry and pinpoint precision, and can communicate that through language to then tell its sisters how to find something or what it is that it needs to find. Now, that's just the single B. Mm -hmm. And if you want to look at the B as a single cell, you could then say that each of the Bs is the single cell inside the greater creature that is the superorganism. That right. superorganism of 60,000 bees can make astonishing decisions. But even if you take a sampling of them, and again, we go back to Dr. Seeley and his research, if you take a swarm, which is usually on average 10 to 15,000 bees, you take those 10 to 15,000 bees and you put them together in the swarm cluster when they form the bivouac, that cluster is almost the same representation as the neurons inside your brain firing and sending different signals. And each of these bees that's going out and gathering bits of information are bringing those back and firing that signal. And that cluster then acts as an actual brain, a computing mechanism to make decisions and decide what is best and what isn't and where to go. 
So there's a whole other profound level of knowledge and understanding that this simple, tiny little insect from our quote unquote Eldridge God perspective has that is not being given credit here in this little write-up. The whole is greater than some of its parts. There's a synergy there that's created from those individual uh, bees gathering into a superorganism where that, that brain power, like you mentioned, is, is compounded and, and just kind of much higher than the sum of all the bees' brain power. It's also very dismissive to think that uh, each of those bees are basically one brain cell um, dumbed down and cannot make any decisions. I think that that goes back to that arrogance we were talking about. And also, I want to point out the fact that the post says that those one brain cells in the Discord server conclude that human protection uh, from the outside threats and pests is going to help them. That's also very arrogant. It's not because they're staying in a cavity of any kind, whether it be provided by human beings or they have found on their own, um, that they are concluding anything as, as far as human protection is concerned. It's just they're very opportunistic. And if it satisfies um, enough the parameters they're looking for, they will stay at least for a while. It doesn't mean they're going to stay forever either. Because even if they go past that swarming, you know, recu recu recovering and, and just kind of looking for another house uh, uh, early on in the process, they could be absconding uh, in a year or two or whenever. And that happens very often when there's not enough food or there's a stressors or there's issues with the brood's nest. Or, or the nest itself and, and the, the quality of the comb or pests and pathogens. So as far as we're concerned, assuming that they're going to stay put even later down the road is also very arrogant. We're lucky that they're even considering staying in those um, man-made boxes as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> we should be grateful. <laughs> right. That's absolutely true, though. That is that is spot on. Absolutely true. And the very last sentence of that first paragraph does say they are free to move away and build a new nest somewhere else. Anytime they want, they simply choose not to. And that is true. They choose mm -hmm. not to as long as the parameters are okay. But up guess what? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Up to a point. If you put that hive in a location that is always wet and dreary and nasty, they will eventually say this isn't worth it. And they will abscond mm -hmm. and leave your man-made hive and go find a better place. Or if it's in an area that is very arid and there's never enough food out there and you're not mm -hmm. feeding them, they will abscond and they will go find a place that hopefully has more available forage for them to be able to sustain the colony and build the, the numbers up. As far as I'm concerned, anyway, I'm actually grateful they're choosing to stay even in an imperfect box that might not satisfy all their needs. And and just sure, looking sure. at it that way, uh, we kind of respect the superorganism a lot more than assuming that they are at our beck and call. That's true. Yeah. The, and that is 100% spot on. Mm -hmm. So the next aspect of this is they assume that the bees are assuming that if they sacrifice part <laughs> of their money to us, that is their payment for us protecting them from evil. That is a, that is a religious viewpoint that Absolutely. is then put on top of something else. And yes. trust me when I say they are never happy <laughs> that you were taking anything from them that they worked really hard to make and gather and store. That is, that is again, as you have said multiple times, very presumptuous 
of yes. an individual to think that you laud that power over something and that it should be grateful again for you for doing that. So no, <laughs> no, yeah. the, uh, the only, the only flip flop to that is that in these man-made boxes, we have designed cavities that are already far larger than anything the bee would ever need in nature. Mm -hmm. But the bees by nature are hoarders. And yes. if it's available, they are going to gather it and store it because it's better to have too much than not have enough in their mind. By increasing that box size, have made it to where they will put excess in there and allows us to take the excess away, not mm -hmm. by their choice or permission. No. <laughs> but to take it away and still leave plenty there for them to survive the winter and us be able to partake and share in that. And we should be grateful, not the bees. Yes. We should be grateful that they are willing to do that extra work and that we can then take that again, not by their choice or permission. <laughs> Well, and you can feel the emotions in all. This is the second time we're saying we should be grateful that they're even staying in those boxes and allowing us to, to, I mean, allowing us, they don't even allow us. They don't have much of a choice when we go in and rob them because that, that's why it's called robbing when you harvest the honey. But, you know, in addition, thinking that they actually are planning ahead and setting aside a part of their harvest so that it can sacrifice it to something greater than them is insane. They're not doing that at all. It's an assumption that's completely incorrect. They're, they're, they're hoarding because they have the space and they've got the natural drive to do so to survive the winter dearth. Um, but providing that extra space, like you mentioned, that never ending extra space, first of all, does a couple of things. It exhausts the colony into uh, working a lot harder than it really needs to. Uh, we tend to also push them to brood up a lot more than they would naturally otherwise do, which introduces a whole host of issues because the brood are used as a way to sanitize the brood's nest and, and, and um, basically recoup some of the health that might have been put under pressure from the threats and, passage and, and pests and pathogens that are usually linked directly to the brood. So, you know, we're, we're actually putting a whole lot of pressure on them. We're making their, their life a lot harder, even though we've provided, quote unquote, a cavity for them. That's not necessarily helping the bees. And, and, and thinking that we are helping them by providing those boxes is, is I think, uh, preposterous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so to, to go in even deeper to this, how preposterous this seems and sounds, the second to last paragraph or the last paragraph prior to the last sentence where they go really in depth on this sacrificing of their harvest, it goes to an entity not only far greater than them, but nearly beyond their comprehension. So first and foremost, yes, we are larger than the bee. Mm -hmm. A bear is larger than us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> also destroys the hive and the bees 1000% understand and comprehend what the hell a bear is. Mm -hmm. So though we look like a strange marshmallow cloud creature, <laughs> we are just the white version of a bear that tears mm -hmm. open their hive and steals their stuff and they react accordingly. It is not, Oh, our God has come and we need to sacrifice our honey. It is mm -hmm. like, that bleepity bleep big white thing is back again and we need to mount all our defenses and chase it away. And, and they do, they sacrifice their lives in defense of this thing that is being robbed from them. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. we're nothing else than a predator to them. And, and the only reason why we have a connection to the bees is because we have been chasing down their sweet harvest for our own purpose. Yep. If you wanted to take it and literally put it into some sort of religious framework or, or structure to drive the point home, in most religions, the ultimate deity or God is oftentimes stated or depicted as something that you cannot even comprehend the face of. It is so beyond what our limited means are that we cannot comprehend what it would look like or what it would appear like and mm -hmm. how it would behave. We can't see the face of God, quote unquote. However, honeybees absolutely can recognize faces. Mm -hmm. They know where your eyes are, where your nose yeah. is, where your mouth mm -hmm. is, where your ears are. And that's why that's the first place they go to sting you. <laughs> because if you are a giant grizzly bear, that's the place that's going to make it count. So again, we are nothing more than a more civilized predator, but a predator all the same. Yeah, we are a mammal and, and we have the same um, predatory behavior than other mammals do. We, we just have developed the um, very elaborate and sophisticated way to basically, you know, I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but to enslave our colonies to our own goals and needs so that we can harvest from them. And, and just, you know, I think that if we work with the bees instead of against them by imposing our will um, on them, they actually will um, not necessarily work better with us, but they will won't be bothered by us, by us and react to us as much and they will be healthier for it. So we'll get better um, results, I think, out of this. I did want to say one little thing. I agree with kind of one thing in this post was the notion of eldritch and that being a threatening power. Because if anything is true in this uh, comment, in this post, it, it is that, that we are indeed in a sense, a threatening power to the bees, but not because they cannot comprehend us, but instead because we're a predator and we do harm um, honeybee colonies a lot by intervening and not respecting their natural processes. Correct. But we are also not a creature that is beyond reproach. And yeah. there are plenty of stories in the news every day and plenty of deaths every year from people that have accidentally or not crossed a bee colony and the bee colony took their life. Mm -hmm. So yes, again, like that, that's why I was like, we are really no better than a grizzly bear. We're just more yeah. mannered and civilized about how we approach it. And mm -hmm. that is kind of a way out there. Like you wouldn't necessarily expect to hear master beekeepers sit here and, and say, you know, look, we are, we are a destructive force and <laughs> we are, we are this and that. But again, mm -hmm. you have to have, some sense of moral understanding and yeah, ethics. ethics. Ethics, yes. You have to have mm -hmm. the ethics to treat this thing with respect and even reverence in some areas in regard. That's what it's about. We should be more reverent of them, not yes. thinking that they need to be more reverent and happy or accepting of us. It's the, right. the complete opposite. We're the one intruding on them and exploiting them. And they don't necessarily agree with it or like it. So it's kind of a, the flip-flop of that for sure. 
Well, because at the extreme, um, this kind of t this post kind of leads to scorched earth, uh, you know, behavior that human beings have adopted for too long, where they're just going to uh, leverage their environment and and take and take and and destroy in the end the balance and just cause an irreparable har harm. So that's kind of why it's so fitting that the honeybees are such a canary in the coal mine kind of concept and, and they're kind of, you know, they're linked to us so closely and we've abused them for so long that, you know, um, it's kind of showing the signs of abuse and, and sending us a very clear message that maybe we should reconsider those um, presumptuous, I love that word that you use, um, uh, behaviors and, and concepts that we we are going with when we work with bees. And there you go, everybody. There you have it. There is our two cents on this theological yeah. posting. And, and boy, did we have strong opinions about this. <laughs> we, we do have some strong opinions for certain. So hopefully that gives everybody something to mill over and think about. And, you know, you can you can go through and decide whether or not you agree or don't agree <laughs> and kind of just go from there. It is it is what it is. But I did think that it was kind of interesting and, and I wanted to I thought it would be a fun topic for us to go through and talk about today. So hopefully, if nothing else, this was something unique and different. And hopefully you enjoyed and, uh, you know, maybe it made you think you don't have to agree with our opinions. But mm -hmm. maybe it made you stop and think about how you view your bee colony and maybe changes that you need to make or things that you're doing really well at, you know, that comes right back into play with all this. So again, thank you so much for tuning in and thank you Natalie for joining for another beekeeper chat I really enjoy these and uh, I'm very grateful because this is actually fitting right into my big um, um, you know my big uh, passion about being more mindful about what we're doing with the bees and, and how we're working with them something like that yeah uh, instead of working against each other absolutely mm -hmm. yes. all right well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in this week. And again, we really appreciate it. And we look forward to talking to you next week. And yep. next week, we will go through and kind of rehash some of the things that will be seen in this Finding Your Queen video. So stick around and stay tuned for that. Thank you so much, Don. Y'all be You're good. Welcome. Hey, you stole my line. <laughs> Fine. <I did> it. <laughs> be mindful, everybody. Bye-bye. There you go. Bye. This Hive Jive production was made possible by amazing patrons like you, and we appreciate your support. To all our Hive Jive junkies out there, you truly are the bee's knees.